thank you so much for coming to Big Ten to our Ten Talk with iCivics. Um, I want to let you know that this Ten Talk has been in the making for quite some time. Jay O'Connor and I were introduced by a mutual friend in December, and after we had a Zoom conversation all about his mom, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, and um, civics education, um, we just knew that iCivics and Big Ten had to meet. Um, it also turns out that one of our Big Tent community members, Lindsay Reimers, is on the board of iCivics. So it made it even more imperative that we have this conversation today. So we are so thrilled to have iCivics come to Big Tent. Jay O'Connor is a software, senior software industry executive and is one of the three sons of Sandra Day O'Connor. He is a managing partner at Silver Tree Associates, advisory partner at Morgan Stanley Expansion Capital, and a member of the governing board of iCivics, which was founded by his mom. iCivics is champions equitable, nonpartisan civics education for students. And I should say it is completely free to both students and educators. Louise Dubay has been the executive director of iCivics since 2015. Previously, Louise had a successful career in educational publishing and instructional technology for over 20 years. Louise won the 2017 People's Choice Award from the DVF Diller Foundation, as well as a 2018 Civis, which is the American Civic Collaboration National Award. So that is super impressive. And I'm going to guess she got to go in person in a nice dress. She was also recognized as a 2019 Donaldson Found Fellow by the Yale School of Management. Louise began her career as an attorney in Montreal, Canada and holds a law degree from McGill University, as well as an MBA from Yale University. So she is super impressive too. Um, please remember to put your questions in the chat for Louise and Jay, and I'm gonna let them take it from here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kitty. Uh, and we are, Louise and I are really happy to be able to join uh, you all today. Um, so as Kitty mentioned, I'm uh, Justice O'Connor's youngest son. And when people think of my mom, they most often think of her as the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court. And certainly that was a role that made her iconic for many in the many women in the country. But few people uh, know about her deep commitment to civic education. And she actually has said many times that she thinks that her most lasting legacy and her most important legacy uh, is actually iCivics, which she founded about 11 years ago. When she retired from the court, uh, she recognized that something was wrong in the country and that not enough Americans understood how are the basics of how our government uh, is designed to work and how citizens can participate in democracy effectively and affect change. And that this lack of knowledge was actually fueling uh, both division and disengagement among the citizenry. So she founded iCivics in about 11 years ago in her, I think she was 79, if you believe it, when she started this nonprofit uh, educational uh, organization. And the goal was she, to, she was to focus on young people as the way to really improve knowledge about sort of these basic principles of our country is designed to work. So she traveled a country, she pulled together some initial funding, she put together a great team. 
she was always adamant that civic education had to be a non-partisan issue, a non-partisan approach. And that is core to civics, to iCivics mission to today, where we seek to find common ground across the political spectrum for this important cause. And Louise will talk about it, but I can fast forward just as one highlight from 11 years ago, now half the kids in the country use iCivics to learn about civic education. So not bad for a uh, startup by a 79 year old woman at the time. So with that, let me uh, introduce uh, Louise to, uh, to tell you more about iCivics. And Louise, you're on mute. All right, I think we're back on. So um, it is an absolute pleasure to be with you guys. Um, your mission of having a democracy that your children may be proud of, that's, um, we, we might in fact adopt that. That's fantastic. Uh, love it, absolutely. So um, here uh, we're gonna start a little bit. And, and Kitty, yes, indeed, the dress was awesome and really fun evening. So, uh, but thank you for this introduction and thank you for taking the time. Um, so I um, stand before you uh, at, a, at a real crossroad in our nation. I don't think that's gonna be any news to any of you. Um, we are barely four months into what was a violent attack on uh, the nation's capital. Uh, we stand between what is a country that will come together and get its act together and have a democracy that our kids are proud of and one which frays. So we've seen these um, undermining of democratic norms for decades now in our field and in the political science field. And the question is what happens from here? This kind of deep polarization, it has consequences. In fact, we've lost young people. Young people, young Americans, are only 30% of them believe that democracy is a very essential system of government. That's a huge difference with older folks who think over 72% of them, those who are born before the World War II, is very essential. The issue here, and what I'd like to focus your attention on is, it's a two-way street, right? Um, when democratic norms Pray, democracy doesn't work, kids start to not believe in it, and you either get them to engage less or more, right? So it's either a virtual circle in which we're able to convince young people that it can work for them and they need to be engaged in it and to know about it, or it's a vicious circle and the disengagement continues. So that is the place where we stand, and that is why we need an investment in civic education. That's what we're about. The situation as it currently stands is not at all surprising. Um, in 1957, when Sputnik happened, when the Russians launched Sputnik, uh, we recognized as a nation that we need to invest in civic, in STEM education. And we, in fact, did that. And it has worked. Uh, our nation is very competitive in STEM right now. And that's partly as a result of those investments. So today, we spend $50 per student 
per year, federal dollars in our school systems for STEM education, which we think is great. Now, if you compare that with what is spent to support our democracy, civic education, we spend five cents per student per year. So that's the gap we're talking about here in terms of what needs to happen to align our national priorities with a system of government that is very difficult. This is the American experiment. It's unique and it's self-government and it's actually very hard and it requires, and that is the beauty of what Justice O'Connor saw, which is that it requires an investment in young people. So as a result, uh, our students don't do very well at all on the uh, most uh, accepted, widely accepted uh, notion of what uh, proficiency is. So there's the nation's report card, otherwise called the NAEP, uh, the civics portion of that. Uh, only 24% of our students are uh, proficient. And that is not changed over decades because the disinvestment in civic education has gone on for decades. The reality is that there is a solution. I, I'm not saying that civic education would solve every uh, condition in uh, every issue in our democracy. We have to restore many democratic norms, civility, as you pointed out. Um, but civic education needs to be one of the solutions. And why am I saying that? Because it works. We have research that shows that it benefits students. Students that get a quality civic education are more likely to complete college. They're more likely to gain employable skills. They're more likely to vote, to engage, to be part of their community. In 2020, if you look at the data, there was a recent um, uh, summary and analysis from Circle. Uh, the youth vote was up by a lot. So that's not surprising. Uh, vote overall uh, voting rates were up uh, in every age category. What is interesting is that for the first time, the youth vote made a difference in some very critical races, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona. So when you look uh, beyond, when you look 10 to 20 to 25 years out, you wanna ask yourself, shouldn't we prepare those students for those votes? Shouldn't we have very well-prepared students uh, for these critical races for their role in this process. And so not only will civic education benefit students, but it also benefits our democracy overall. And the really unbelievable thing about civic education, it's a unicorn. We had some polling data from Frank Luntz, who could, we commissioned this polling data as um, iCivics. And he found that of all the solutions to reduce polarization and bring us together as a country, the only, the number one solution was civic education and both Republicans and Democrats agree. That's unheard of, right? Most of the solutions are either favored from one party or the other. And so uh, that is why we think that's very fertile ground uh, for an investment in civic education. So that's the background for this conversation. And now why am I here? Uh, uh, we, uh, as Jay pointed out, uh, started out as iCivics as an idea in Justice O'Connor's brain. And now uh, we teach uh, 8 million students a year 
over half of the nation's students. 120,000 educators use our materials every year. So we are the sector leader and we are, uh, our mission uh, is a thriving American democracy supported by informed and civilly engaged young people. That's what we aim to do. A few years ago, when we took a look at what we were doing, realized that we weren't gonna be able to get there to fulfill our mission without having a movement, a movement that made civic education a priority for this nation. So not only are we a resource provider, but we have built a movement toward civic education. And so let me spend a couple minutes telling you about both sides of our work so you understand a little better uh, what we do. We are known for our games. So they're uh, simulations of civic processes. So there's things that you couldn't do, if some of you were uh, teachers, you couldn't do in your classroom, uh, teach the presidential election, it's really hard to do. So that's where technology steps in. This year in 2020, whenever it's an election year, our most uh, popular game is called Win the White House. So all of our materials, as Kitty said, are free. Um, and uh, so let me explain a little bit about Win the White House. So in Win the White House, the student is the candidate. So they're running for president. They choose their party, they choose their issues, and then they start running a campaign. They decide what states to go into, uh, where to poll, where to fundraise. And in the process, over many weeks of their campaign, they either win or lose, and they learn about the electoral college system. So it makes it fun. It's really challenging um, and uh, very, very popular. We have 14 of those role-playing games. Um, I do. We also have many other lesson plans and so on. Um, I do want you to know, though, that our materials were research validated. So by which I mean that third independent third parties uh, ran studies against iCivic materials, um, and they found that students who use iCivics are, have higher gains on civic knowledge, that is sort of how the system works. Civic skill, so those are skills like detecting misinformation or disinformation and civic disposition. So civic dispositions are things like, um, are you able to work with somebody you disagree with? Can you actually see the other side? And can you find common ground to solve civic problems? So uh, all of those things, uh, we, we have research to validate that it works. As I said, um, that's sort of our bread and butter and what we do, um, but we also spend quite a bit of time to help civics become a priority for our nation. And we do that through a coalition. So coalition uh, called Civics Now, C-I-V-X-N-O-W.org. That coalition has at the moment over 166 cross-partisan partners. Um, these are organizations like uh, the YMCA, uh, the Girl Scouts of America, uh, the um, ADA, the League of Women Voters. So a lot of uh, large networks, it's, it's sort of what you do when you don't have money, you, you try to get these networks together to apply pressure. We, most of our work is on policy and advocacy. Right now, we have a bill in Congress uh, called the Civics Secures Democracy Act. That's the fuel 
which the civic education movement needs to invest in civic education. So billion dollars a year for five years, bipartisan, right? This is a unicorn in our current Congress. Both Republicans, very senior, very, Republic, very conservative Republicans and Democrats suggest, uh, support the Civic Secures Democracy Act. Uh, I bring this up because May is our advocacy month. Um, we are uh, trying to reach every member of Congress about with our message. Uh, we've created a toolkit and you're gonna get the link and we could sure use your help. Uh, a one call to a, um, a representative or your senator would be very helpful uh, to show support for this issue. Uh, that's what it needs. Um, I'm just gonna mention briefly that we were also the grantee from the National Endowment for the Humanities for a um, project called the Educating for American Democracy Initiative. Over 300 people came together, found common ground to issue guidance about how to teach history and civics, inquiry in depth for the future. So schools, districts, and states could model their standards based on this guidance that we've issued. Got tremendous amount of press, tremendous amount of attention, uh, very much a common ground kind of perspective. People from all um, political views have come together for this and it's been a real honor to be, um, the, uh, to, to be in the lead on that project. Uh, we've also worked at the state level. So we're monitoring 90 bills dialed in 34 states this spring. Lots of interest in civic education in this session. Uh, we have a task force that meets regularly with 32 states. We have a big policy summit um, funded by the Carnegie Corporation of New York in September, a virtual summit, September 21st and 22nd. We'd love to have you there. Um, everybody is welcome. Um, and we have several, I think we just noted here, several of the local coalitions we work with that might be of interest to you if you live in those states. So we've talked about big numbers, half the students in the country, 120,000 teachers. We've talked about policy, but really I wanna just spend a moment on why this matters on a human level. Right. This is not about numbers. This is about real teachers and real students. And so I thought I'd focus a couple minutes on um, a couple of our really amazing uh, users. Um, I'm going to start uh, with this teacher, uh, Kajol Chowdhury. And um, I apologize to her if I'm mispronouncing her name. Uh, so she's actually really interesting. Uh, before the pandemic hit, uh, we went and visited her classroom in Oakland, California, um, and it was a real honor. So uh, Ms. Chowdhury uh, did, uh, had a career in law and finance before she became a high school teacher, which is really amazing. Uh, she now is teaching uh, seniors for the last three years. And she tells us that not only is she telling students that civics is the most important class, but also that students are realizing through her instruction how important this is to have a voice and to feel like you're part of the system. And this is her student, uh, Brandon. He's 18 years old. Um, and it was really an honor to 
to meet him. Um, he told us the story, it was just before the 2020 election. Uh, his family, most of them don't vote. They don't think it matters. They think it's a waste of time. And having gone through this class, he realized the importance of civic education and how much it gave him the vote, the, the voice. And uh, he went out and voted uh, for the first time and he only he and his mother. And so it was such a, a heartwarming feeling for me and for the team uh, to see that our work actually uh, matters uh, to real day people and, and uh, kids. And so it's, uh, it was a real honor. So with that, I'm going to um, stop sharing my screen and uh, thank you and welcome your questions. Is, um, we, oh. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just wondering if somebody's going to um, show oh. questions. I see there are a lot of them, but I'm not sure that I, I can pass through all of them. Jay, do you want to take, do you want to moderate the questions or? No, you go ahead and we'll, we'll, we'll take whatever questions come. Okay. Okay. That sounds great. Okay. Um, there are a lot of them and I'm going to try to group them together, but that might not be my strongest suit. So, um, um, let maybe what we'll do is start with the education component of iCivics and then we'll work out to the broader conversation around um, the national coalition and also around the legislation um, that you know hopefully we can um, we can help you know make a difference and get it passed. So a couple of questions, you know, first of all, um, the idea that this curriculum is obviously available to all teachers and students who want to go ahead and sign up on the website. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, because I'm a former middle school teacher, so this is a little bit of my sweet spot. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how iCivics engages educators in order to create curriculum that's not only you know, developmentally appropriate for students, but also user-friendly for um, educators. Give us a little bit of the back, you know, how that works. You know, um, what was really great about uh, Sandra Day O'Connor is that she really listened. And um, when she founded iCivics, she went to educators first and foremost. Uh, met the, the father of educational gaming, Jim G and started out developing uh, uh, games as the first uh, notion. Hired only educators. So our team, uh, so Dr. Emma Humphreys, who's uh, with us today, uh, leads uh, our team. Um, all of the all of the curriculum developers are educators. Um, we have a, a set of folks who are on civics and history. We have some uh, educators from the English language arts. We have a review committee that assesses the materials for their um, balanced political diversity points of view. Um, so we've got a review committee. We've got academics involved in that review process as well. Uh, so the beauty of iCivics is really about its ability to understand educators and what they need and give them just that, right? Uh, we have all of our materials are designed for the 45 minute period, sometimes over many of those 45 minute periods, but they are, they take into consideration the standards, what, what educators have to teach and the available time that they have, because we know that's one of the biggest uh, issues. They put it in fun and, and um, 
engaging language, which is why educators like it, because students like it. So um, that is really the biggest strength of the iCivics development process. Louise, there are a couple of related questions uh, to what you were just talking about. So a couple of people asked, how do teachers fit iCivics into their curriculum? Is it in addition to social studies or history? Um, also, are independent school teachers um, receptive to using uh, your curriculum as well? Yeah, so we actually, if you look at the um, adoption map for iCivics, uh, we are in all 50 states, and we look exactly like a map of education in America. So our biggest states are also the biggest education states, California, Texas, Florida, New York. Um, so it's everywhere. It's in public, charter, independent schools, all over. Of course, the majority of our users are public school teachers because that's the majority of education in the, in the United States. So um, that's uh, the first piece of it. Um, it is mostly used in social studies classes. So it is used all the way from fourth grade. So I, I actually joined ICEVICS because my son did it in fourth grade. So Daniel uh, came home and it was a side, was it just around um, the election, the first uh, Obama election. And he, um, he said to me, I gotta go play a game. And I'm like, we don't play games, we do our homework. And he's like, uh, no, no, this is the homework money. <laughs> and uh, so he went off and played the game and he came back and said, told me all of school should be like ICIS. And I'm like, I've been spending like, I spent 25 years in education technology before that. Um, and I had to bribe them in the past. So I had an older son. Um, but anyway, um, it was really, uh, I started paying attention. I, I didn't join iCivics for several years after that. Um, so, you know, it was really um, a, a, an important moment for me. And I saw that this is a place where both teachers and students can come together over uh, what we do. So, but we also, it's, it's all the way from fourth grade, all the way to AP classes. We have some community college that also use iCivics. I have a, um, uh, can I just do a follow-up question around the technology piece? Um, how are you, you know, when iCivics is sort of uh, communicating with educators or your, your education network is, is letting you know, how has the pandemic and the fact that this is a technology-based, um, you know, education platform, how has, how has that impacted your work? I mean, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing that we are all hearing about, you know, these um, broadband issues for especially like rural, you know, rural Americans and, you know, kids living in, you know, sort of lower income houses, like how are you guys having to sort of take that on in addition to everything else you're doing? Yeah, uh, it was a really difficult um, uh, transition, but obviously we were already all uh, digital. So it helped us compared to other programs that were in person, but there were still, as you point out, there are big gaps, right, in digital access in schools. And so what we found is in some cases, um, what happened is that school districts printed out our materials in print, took those packets and drove them around to every um, household. Um, it was painful to see, frankly, um, but it, is, it did happen. And our games cache locally, so you don't have to rely on stable internet all the time. So that's also a help. Uh, we then pivoted really quickly and created a game odyssey so that parents can play with their kids. So there's an incentive in continuing to play and do more online. And that was amazing. The team really pulled together and did that within a month of the pandemic hitting. 
Uh, but overall, I would say that uh, what we're seeing is that um, there's less instruction going on out there in the country, right? Um, and that's impacting every discipline in every way. And, and we're seeing teachers, we just had an educator network meeting. That's our, we have 400 teachers who are sort of the core of iCivics, um, our, our biggest advocates, and that we bring them together on a regular basis. And uh, they were sharing how tired they are and how difficult and how many of them are thinking about leaving the profession. It's, it's a very, um, it's a very difficult time, as we know. Louise, here's a question from Nicole Heath. Uh, how do you fund your program? I assume it's all private funding, but is it primarily individuals or foundations or corporate support? Do you work with any of the computer game companies? I wish we worked with the computer game companies. <laughs> We've tried many times. Uh, if anybody of you has um, connections there, I'd love to talk to them. Uh, no, we don't. Um, we are mainly funded, so the core of our support is institutional um, foundations, large uh, Carnegie corporations, Hewlett Foundation, um, and um, many others. Um, we do get some funding from the federal government through the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is the project I was talking about before. And then the rest of it is private donations from individuals, and we're deeply grateful for that. Um, and it is entirely philanthropic, not entirely. There's, there's about uh, 10 to 15 percent, which is earned revenue. We do license our materials out to publishers and others, um, but that's kind of limited so far. Our budget is roughly, um, we actually uh, got a, a large donation from uh, Leonard Lauder this year, uh, which uh, increased our budget to, uh, substantially. So we will end up around $7.9 million this year. Uh, traditionally about, uh, you know, we've grown from uh, three to more recently, uh, four and $5 million year. Here's a question from Cynthia. How will you address the differences between a conservative view of teaching civics versus a more liberal and diverse path? I've seen a huge backlash locally against any approach that includes any mention of equality in terms of race in particular. Yeah. Um, this is an extraordinarily hard issue. And it is probably the hardest issue I've faced as an executive director um, in all the years I've been here. Uh, we are seeing a number of anti-critical, quote-unquote, critical race theory bills across, roll across the state, and it is even threatening the, our federal bill um, as a result of controversy over a uh, Department of Education-issued priority rule. Um, we have, uh, on an ongoing basis and in a very substantial way, tried very hard to reach consensus with uh, folks on both sides who are looking for common ground. That is what we were able to do in our Educating for American Democracy. Uh, we believe there is a path in which we acknowledge the deep failures around race in our history and also the incredible achievements of this country and of individuals. The point of education, particularly civic education, is to provide students with hope to provide them with the idea that they can be a useful civic agent, uh, knowing everything there is to know about democracy, how they can participate, right? So no one wants to give students um, a, um, uh, a view of history in which they feel there is no hope. At the same time, it is very hard to stand before a group of students of color and not acknowledge that, um, that the history is painful 
in that we have to make it relevant. So we try to do both. We are calling for more deeper uh, 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 learning and more history, uh, stories of achievement um, among people of color. Um, and so the, as well as all of the rest of our history, which is very highly complex and difficult, but that needs more, not less. And so, but uh, having said that, I would ask you for your help. I think there are so many incredible Americans who are looking for common ground, who want to talk about race in productive ways. And I find the use of this issue by those who are looking to divide us to be deeply troubling. I'll leave it there. Here's a question. What do you see as the biggest hurdles to passing the federal legislation? Or it could be state legislation too. Yeah, so I, there are two issues. One is it needs a lot of attention. It, there are so many issues uh, that are on the Hill right now. It needs to be elevated to be a priority. So that's one. And then there is this um, issue of race, which some folks are trying to do as a divider uh, among Americans. And we need to fight back. We need to say there is common ground. We did sit down together and we can do this. And I think a lot more people have to speak up uh, about that. Let's see, there was another. Um, I just saw an interesting one. Um, oh, is there a program that engages parents and students that teaches civics to uh, the, the civics that teaches civics? Too many adults are uneducated about how democracy works and how the Constitution enables democracy. Right. Um, well, uh, deep agreement there. Uh, so there's been a uh, lack of civic education for a very long time. Therefore, we've lost generations. Um, it, we did do a um, we did do a trial to use our materials and teach uh, adults about civic education. It worked in part very very hard to find places that have um, ways to reach people uh, who are not already converted. Right, so uh, the folks, the adults that we need to reach are those that are harder to reach. Um, and so very few organizations have those kinds of networks. Um, I'd point to the National Constitution Center as being one of those uh, great places that does a lot of adult programming um, that you might want to direct people to, but clearly there's a bigger need here. Um, and I hope somebody does that. We're, we're a little busy with, with, uh, with young people. <laughs> All right, here's another one. Uh, does iCivics address media literacy in any of your work? Oh, absolutely. It's one of the biggest issues. Uh, we believe it to be one of the most important skills that we can teach in civic education, right? The ability, we have a game called Newspeed Defenders. We have a whole library of material that teaches about both the skills in trying to see, um, detect disinformation, the sources, learning journalistic practices, but also about uh, the actual mechanics of how these Facebook algorithms, how the social media work, so that you can actually teach the kids how this stuff works, because they use it a lot doesn't mean they really understand how it works, right? So you need to do both. And we think this is uh, one of the most critical issues that needs to, to be taught. Uh, here's a question about CivX uh, Now, the coalition. When you started the coalition Civics Now, what did you find uh, where places have crossed partisan uh, ground? 
where did you find places of uh, common ground? Yeah, you know, um, I think I'll address that through Educating for American Democracy, which is just sort of more recent and easier a little bit uh, to describe. Um, I would say that the place that we found a lot of common ground is within civic knowledge, and that's why we started there, right? Uh, we know that um, the uh, conservatives really care about the founding and about understanding how we as a country achieved so much and the grounding and the philosophy and so on. Um, and on the left, there is also an appreciation that civic knowledge and the way our system works is important, as well as wanting to go further into taking action. So if we could come around together around notions of civic knowledge, uh, then we could go further around the pedagogy. Uh, we have um, uh, been able to get common ground around a notion called reflective patriotism. So I know that there's been a certain amount of, um, on the left, uh, a, a reluctance to use the word patriotism. Uh, but we think that this notion of reflective patriotism actually is a notion that can bring everyone together because it acknowledges that uh, we need to be able to criticize uh, our country, to criticize its failures, but also love it, right? So those are the tensions, both tensions that bring together both parties. It, it was a very hard process. Now, I, I don't wanna minimize it. The discussions were heated um, and the engagement was very strong. We had some very right-wing people and we had some very uh, left uh, folks. And, and but through, if you have goodwill and you are trying to find common ground, you will. There are so many wonderful Americans who are trying to do that. And, and I really believe in that process. I think the process is being hijacked right now. And that's where we, uh, that's what we're, we should come back. Um, but we were able to do it. Uh, and we were also able to do it about prioritizing civic education. Uh, lots of folks on the right, and obviously the right is splintered into different groups, but there is a substantial portion of it that actually believe in that. A lot of um, also believe in experiential learning in the form of community service. So that's another area of uh, common ground. Here's one. Uh, you noted positive impact on completing college skills, voting, et cetera. How are you able to track impact over time and leverage that data to further promote civics education as practical education the way STEM has been marketed? Yeah, what a not wonderful question. I think it's really important for our message. So in order to do that, um, what we want to have is a set of data, right? So this is a field that doesn't have a tremendous depth of data. So what we have provided, we have called for our civic learning plans. These are measures by schools of what they are investing to graduate uh, civically prepared and engaged students and how they will measure that performance over time. And then we would like to have that data aggregated at the state level and then also published at the national level. We'll see if we get there. But if only schools were to say, we are going to commit to this and we are going to track our progress, 
One of the ways in which we think is very promising on that notion is that many states, California being one, New York, others, are adopting these civic seals, right? So those are measures of excellence for civics uh, within the K-12 system. We would like them to be um, tracked at the fourth, eighth, and twelfth grade, not only um, as for the seniors. Uh, and then uh, use that notion about the proportion and um, the equity of those civic skills being um, awarded over time to be ensure that we have a um, an equitable and yet an excellent system of civic education. So that's the future. For right now, the Civics Secures Democracy Act calls for measuring the performance of students on the nation's report card, the NAEP test for civics uh, on a state-by-state -state basis. So at regular two-year intervals, so we can follow whether students are doing better. So if we pass legislation in a state, then we can measure whether the students are doing better as a result of those investments. So that's, that's our accountability measure. We believe accountability is very important. It is overall not a tested field. It has suffered uh, as a result. Um, but on the other hand, I think parents are really reluctant uh, to do more testing of their students at this time. So it's kind of a, a little bit of a bind. That's why we're using the NAEP test, just to be clear, is not a student achievement test. It is a sampling test, meaning uh, your uh, student is not necessarily going to uh, take it every year. This is they sample uh, from different schools and they rotate them over years. So it simply gives you an overall performance of whether students in a particular state are doing well or not. Uh, does iCivics teach students about the importance of state civics as well as federal civics? Absolutely. Um, in fact, what's interesting about that is that um, a lot of the state constitutions um, provide for the right to a civic education uh, and equitable civic education. There's actually a lawsuit going on right now, uh, which is actually getting some traction on this notion. Uh, so we look back at the state constitutions as well. Uh, now, you know, the amount of time that's available for that kind of instruction at the K-12 level is pretty limited. Um, so it's, it's a, a bit of a uh, light overview, um, but uh, we have done it in some, in some states. Uh, will these measures be available publicly? How can nonprofits help collect data from schools? We work specifically with educators and faith communities who are very involved in testing and exploring new approaches to civic learning in the classroom and school-wide and have much to share, but I'm not sure the right way to share back, the right way to share back our findings. Yeah, uh, so Lindsay, I, I, we know the work of Civic Spirit. Thank you so much. And I think the place to uh, uh, continue that conversation is within our Educating for American Democracy communities of practice. Um, we are working on that, uh, on structuring that data right now. Um, as I said, this is a, a future looking project um, and uh, we will continue to engage that entire community in the, the evolution of that data set um, and in, uh, in uh, evangelizing about its usefulness. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for your partnership. Uh, 
Let's see. Do you make an effort with 12th graders to register them to vote? It would be an excellent metric, obviously. Yeah, so that's part of our state policy menu, pre-registration. Uh, in some cases, it can happen at the state level. Um, it, it's been an interesting process as uh, I don't know if many of you know, we did run, uh, we do run a uh, coalition in Massachusetts called the uh, Massachusetts Civic Learning Coalition. Uh, in which passed uh, legislation in Massachusetts a few years ago and budget uh, as part of that was high school registration. And I, I'll be honest, the, the legislative part of this was pretty um, easy uh, to pass, um, but the difficult part is actually implementation of it. Um, in, a, in a local control state like Massachusetts, uh, going around and ensuring the Secretary of State does its work to actually get high schools to have the programs in place to do pre-registration uh, is a fair amount of work. Um, so you got to pay attention to both. So uh, if, if you guys want, if there are some of you want to join the efforts in the coalitions at the state level and help push that, that would be very useful. There's a considerable amount of heavy lifting to be done, even if you're able to pass a legislative mandate uh, to get uh, uh, things to, to happen here. But it's obviously, very important work. Uh, great. Well, I think we're um, we've covered a lot of ground. I wanted to make just sort of a comment or two uh, on my own experiences with civics. So, like Louise, my kids. Uh, I have two boys. Uh, one is a junior in high school, and one is an eighth grader. And their schools, as they've gone through middle school. Um, had just coincidentally were, were users of iCivics and uh, for their students. And my own experience is that, you know, my literally my now junior would come home, um, you know, from middle school and said, and talk about he and his buddies are literally playing, continuing the game they started at school and playing at home because they found it interesting and enjoyable. And I mean, how many classes do you hear about where the kids are coming home and want to do more because they found it engaging? And that was part of my mom's vision, which was to reach kids. You can make, civics shouldn't be this boring, dry, stale, stale subject. There are ways you can make it interesting and engaging. And early on, they figured out that, you know, the insight was, hey, let's make this role-based games. You're, you're sort of, you're putting yourself in the process. You know, you're playing the role of a judge or you're playing the role of somebody who's running for president or getting legislation passed. And you gain a real level of sophistication through that interactive learning the way these games are designed. And then as we've extended as an organization to have materials for lots of high schoolers as well, we don't rely just on the games. We have other curriculum materials and traditional key, uh, materials, but all still with the insight that you can make civics fun and interesting. And that's the way to really capture their interest. Um, my son, Dylan, as I said, who's now a junior, ended up doing a project, a research project over the course of uh, last summer. And he did a national survey of young people, recent high school students to get their feedback on civic education. And there was lots of good de detail. Um, just a couple of highlights. One of his big findings in this national survey of young people was that student, most students are satisfied with their high school civics course um, and they're largely similar to their satisfaction with for US history courses. So there's room to improve satisfaction um, 
uh, but students generally like their civics class, but they want, they want, they identified a whole bunch of ways that can make it more engaging and more interesting. And they're exactly the kinds of things that sort of iCivics brings to bear. A really interesting finding was around high, that, that there was a belief that a finding that high school civics courses should devote significantly more attention to teaching students how to get involved in the community and encouraging them to do so. So 75% of students said they feel it's important to get involved in the community, but only 31% students say that their, their K through 12 classes effectively prepared them to be an engaged participant. So what, you, what they're saying is, I want to be involved, just give me a little bit of uh, more uh, ideas about how I can be, become involved, a little more inspiration. And I think that could be a really intriguing way to get uh, young people more involved in, uh, in their communities, which would be an amazing outcome. Um, uh, and then just the last little highlight was this survey was another um, source showing that taking a high school civics class is very positively correlated with uh, numerous desired civics income. So he measured, asked about their voting uh, students' voting intent, um, their stated importance, importance of getting involved in the community. Um, and there was a complete correlation between kids who taken civics classes, it increased voting intent, it increased their stated importance of getting involved in the community and a higher agreement that civics classes effectively prepared them to get involved in the community. So again and again, we're seeing through research from scientists as well as my high school kid who did actually a really sophisticated uh, research project that validated the kinds of things, the, the importance of civics to young people, their agreement that, that civics uh, can be taught in, in better ways, um, and, and that uh, validation of the kinds of tools and approaches that iCivics is taking. Wow, thank you. Um, Jay and Louise, um, this was such a fruitful and timely conversation. I think, um, on behalf of Big Tent, I just wanna say that we really appreciate your time and your talent and your energy. And we um, are so grateful that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor saw the situation on the ground as it was. I, I definitely did not. And uh, you know, I was living in my own little raising two boys bubble, but uh, I, excuse me, I think we all know now that um, we have really got to dig in and um, provide a civics education to every American student, and it's a really vital way for us to rebuild our democracies.